This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name's Andrew. And I'm burning up to tell you about a book this week that I didn't even read. <laughs> uh, before we get into that, which cuz uh, cuz I read the book the, the Public Burning by Robert Coover. Oh boy did I read it. Yeah, boy, and it's, this is our book did podcast. Did I read this book? Where one of us reads a book that we haven't read before, it's usually on some somebody somewhere's list of books that you should have at least heard of by now. Is this a Patreon one? It was. It was. Do we a have Patre- a note for this one? Yeah. I would um, love to know what this person said about this before I, I. And then I have a question. I need to put you on trial for a second. Oh, after. I know what you're going to tell me about. Patreon.com/slash/overduepod. Uh, Daniel recommended this book. Thank you, Daniel. I was hoping you guys would cover a book by this author I recently discovered. It's *The Public Burning* by Robert Coover. It's a satire of the Cold War and the Rosenberg ex- executions, as told by then VP Nixon, who is a surreal character. Character. End of transmission. That's okay. what I got. Yeah, for no, that's you. that's accurate. That's an accurate description. I mean, yeah. it is it is it doesn't go far enough as a description of the book, but nothing that is there is inac- inaccurate. Yes. Um, so yeah. So Craig, you did an oopsie on the Listen. on the little fires ever little fires everywhere episode. Where we were talking about Shaker Heights, an affluent suburb of the city of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. yeah. And you conflated Shakers and Quakers. And then my mother-in-law, who listens, and yeah. who is a Quaker, yes, uh, emailed to say that you were wrong about that. And yes. then so and, and then I've got I've got additional yep. <laughs> follow-ups because we saw them. They they watched Henry this weekend. Yeah. And then they brought him back this evening. And then she made an offhand comment about how you also had been known to confuse the 18th and the 16th centuries, which I think is a reference to your email reply to the original Shaker Quaker email. Did I write 16th in the email or 18th? You wrote 18th. Well, that's what I meant. Hmm. That unless hmm. I unless I said something about the Quakers, the Shakers originated in the 1750s. Mm-hmm. They, okay. They broke from the Society of Friends who were the Quakers. Mm-hmm. I'm just that. Hey, I'm just asking questions. No, you're not. You're trying to put me on trial in a public burning here. <laughs> and I already apologized to your mother-in-law, a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and said I could have been more explicit about the fact that I was referencing, basically, which mm-hmm. I recognize mm-hmm. conflating Shakers with Quakers is not useful to our modern understanding of Quakers. <laughs> But All I don't, right, well, thanks, I don't, thanks I for do me. not get the 18th versus 16th thing, and I will not stand here or <laughs> sit here or lay down here mm-hmm. and be slandered as such. Now, we're going to talk well, about a book that has a lot of slander in it. It does, and I pre- but I appreciate you letting me just ask these questions because people want to know the answer, and I'm not going to talk about the answers because I'm just asking questions. I hate I'm a real this kind of style of reporting. For you, the real Rogan-esque sort of Tucker Carlson kind of boy. I'm just I'm asking really, questions. Really, and not loving Google this the answers, new leaf that you've turned over here. I, well, that's that's on you because these some of these media personalities have been phenomenally successful. Oh, okay, that's where we're going. Well, <laughs> Andrew, so okay, so you wanted to know that now that I have stood trial and stand vindicated, partially, mm, arguably, on some charges. <laughs> um. We're going to talk about this book here that neither of us had ever heard of. It's no, and I'd never heard of this, this author, author before. Yeah. Um, and this is and his I, most like, noteworthy book. Yes, that's true. All, all I know about the like the publication of it is because it, it came out in what, like 77? 77, yeah. Um, which is, I believe, post-Watergate, but not by a ton. And so... The figure of Richard Milhouse Nixon would be <laughs> probably ripe for uh, some public dunking. 
Yeah. As, as it were. But I think publishers were still sort of hesitant to publish this very trippy book where Richard Nixon is the, the protagonist. <laughs> and just there's just a lot of stuff in here about like living public figures. Yeah. So I want to get to that because part of that is this book's legacy more mm-hmm. even than the book itself, I think. Um, or at least that's how Robert Coover will tell you it is is its legacy. Most of the sources on its legacy are Robert Coover himself. Yeah, I'm not sure an interview. what kind of imprint this book actually has on like the the world of literature, but there there are quotes from, you know, notable authors, Joyce Carol Oates, you know, folks in the postmodern tradition after like your Don DeLillo's, anybody chronologically after that have certainly read Coover and gotten into his stuff. Um, but a lot of the things, perhaps by the very nature of them being political, um, and people wanting to distance themselves from what he was writing in this mm-hmm. book, mm-hmm. uh, maybe the record is just a little scant because nobody wanted to go on it, you know? Maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe yes. they're not all as brave as me standing up in front of everyone here. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Robert Cooper. Yeah, just with your like shaker Quaker <laughs> <laughs> supposition. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Robert Coover, born 1932 in the state of Iowa, studied in the states of Illinois and Indiana before he served in the U.S. Navy from 1953 to 1957, uh, partially in the Korean War. And he received his his master's of like generalities and humanities or general studies in the humanities from the University of Chicago. That sounds... Like a lazy degree. No, that sounds like a, I want to be an experimental fiction writer. Okay, what masters I, will allow me to teach that you also? Get your masters in generality, like I think it's like, general studies. I'm just I'm up here saying things. I'm inspired by like my legal get, victory. You get that master's degree so you can put raconteur in your Twitter profile. Oh, yes. Like that's what that, that's what that's for. Uh, he started publishing stories in the Evergreen Review, which had previously published folks like William Burroughs, um, Henry Miller, Samuel Beckett. Um, an example that is tossed around one of his short stories, uh, how experimental it was in some ways, is that like this called this thing called the babysitter. It's like a core scenario in the story, but it, of like you know some a babysitter comes over and watches some kids for a family, and then it has this kind of Rashomon slash like evil chooser parallel narrative quantum like quantum mechanics what else could have (laughs) happened kind of stuff where it's all presented not as like only one of them is the true version of the story but like this is all the ways the story could have gone very interesting in that stuff he founded some he founded something called the electronic literature organization in 1999 he Mm co-founded it uh, which is ELO, huh? Yeah. <laughs> I love their music. Uh, okay. He's interested in stuff like hypertext narrative, net poetry, things that are like only right, only creatable given mm. modern technology. Mm-hmm. So po- poems about basketballs. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, he apparently, like back in the 60s, had been fooling around with like, what if I made a bunch of punch cards that all had narrative nuggets on them and then like you drew them randomly or so- something similar to like a proto hypertext kind of the way that yeah, we think sure. about stuff like that. And that's interesting. Um, he taught at Brown for like three decades starting in the 80s. Um, and he has a lot. He's written a lot and a lot of different stuff. His first book was called Origin of the Brunists. Um, which is something about minors. I'm not sure. You, you also found a baseball, some baseball book. That I did? found a book called the Universal Baseball Association Incorporated J. Henry Waugh proprietor that was published in 1968. That is like, what if at the end of every day, instead of having a daydream, Walter Mitty went home from his sad job and played a tabletop baseball game he invented mm-hmm. and it took over his life such that he couldn't distinguish what was real and what was fake. And then the book started being told from the perspective of the characters in the baseball simulation because okay. he was so invested in it, such that like he couldn't avoid killing one of the characters that he'd put on his like 
if you roll the die bad, somebody gets beamed in the head thing. No, this is a good Twilight Zone episode that yeah. he's written. Yeah, definitely. That was his book before this one. <laughs> He'd written some short stories. And then in the 60s, he was very politically involved. Um, he'd you know done some protesting in the Vietnam War. I think when this book was actually started its route to publication, this book being public burning, he was like living in Britain for a period of time before he came back. Mm-hmm. Um, and he started this book in the 60s as like he thought it might be a piece of theater i found this interview with him on uh in the magazine believer he said i started the public burning as a theater piece meant to be protest theater i was going to go down to times square and block traffic and set up a stage to execute the rosenberg see how far we could get and i had in my mind that uncle sam would be my master of ceremonies but he didn't know anybody in New York, and he didn't know how to make a piece of theater. So he <laughs> there is still like snippets of it that are written in that like a script sort of or style, yeah. but not not very much of it at all. Like only only teeny tiny little bit sections. I, I saw another interview that said at that point he'd started transitioning into writing a novella. He knew he needed some sort of central clown in his circus, as he puts it. And this was right around when Nixon was being inaugurated. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's like, oh, Nixon might work. He's like an outsider. He's just kind of vulgar guy. He starts digging into the research and finds stuff like Nixon's like breaking into his dean's office for like stuff and the other previous political scandals. And then while he's working on this novel, Watergate happens. <laughs> so he's like, huh, I guess I think as he put it, his being in trouble in public helped me more more deeply explore who he was in private so he like yeah. this is a like he just tweeted it out kind of situation where now he has to dig into the character a bit more and decides that he could make it like a much bigger part of the novel um, yeah there's there's there you come away with the from this not being like very sympathetic for for richard nixon but it is a Given that modern portrayals of him are more or less all sort of like, you know, Futurama headed, like yeah. evil head in yeah. a jar, like that, that is the, that is what his like footprint in our culture has been boiled down to. This is a more interesting and, and nuanced take on, on Nixon, I think, but still seems like fundamentally not a great guy. No, I was <laughs> so. like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and the big thing about its publication was that uh, it was probably it was probably not the first, but it was certainly one of the more high profile situations among these publishers, these book publishers, where they were where this is a book that is that has living public figures in it like that. Yes. Mm-hmm. That is not a thing that up until that period of time, I think a lot of at least American booksellers wanted to touch. Um, you had previous works that had changed names. You had previous works about people who had already died. Um, I think Knopf, Knopf helped him like do some of the original manuscript editing and then dropped it. And then it was down to uh, like Ferrer and Strauss and Viking, who eventually is is who published it. But there was a lot of back and forth where like every editor's publisher. Like every editor's legal team was like, don't do it. Please don't do it. <laughs> There's like a hundred people that are real in this book, including, and you've got the family of the Rosenbergs, because this is about Ethel and Julius Rosenberg, as I think we've only alluded to briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got Nixon, and you mentioned Roy Cohn in this book. And apparently, Roy Cohn, the infamous lawyer allied with McCarthy and other things, had also like, recently sued a television station for some movie that talked about him or something yeah like so you got roy Cohn in it you've got like pretty much every like every person who had been on the like the prosecution and the defense for the rosenbergs uh, yep. you had a bunch of supreme court justices <laughs> um the families of of many of the figures involved including uh nixon's uh, wife and children um, did you know that Richard Nixon's daughter married Eisenhower's grandson? I did not know that. I don't think I knew that. Yeah, that was a, it was a surprise for me. I'm just going to sit and think about that for a second. Yeah, just do that. I don't you don't have to have like an interesting reaction on air or anything. I just thought it was a fun fact. 
Just the world is smaller than you think sometimes, you know? I mean, it, the world is smaller than you think, but also they did rule a country together for eight <laughs> <Yeah>. years. So, <laughs> like... We don't often use the word rule a country in America, That's but I think... they did, You know, though. they did. Um, mm-hmm. the, ultimately, they were... Viking was able to weather the pre-production storm... Um, this guy, I think Martin Garbus was their legal counsel. Martin Garbus. I think his name was Marty Garbus. Um, it sounds like a TARDIS, but in a trash can instead of a phone booth. Yeah, Marty Garbus. Um, Hop in my Garbus and, and let's go. He was helping. Universe. He was helping them navigate all of the various uh, like publication recommendations. Like, what if you just took out these people's names? What if you just changed this? What if you just changed this? And they're ultimately. As Coover tells it, the changes were pretty small, and some of them he worked out like kind of directly with uh, the sons of the Rosenbergs, I think. Mm-hmm. And then Garbus went on to be- like go on retainer for Viking, and then like got them a big uh, victory in the '80s on another libel case or something. Um, so that's kind of what his deal is. Uh, and then to hear Coover tell it, this no like big firestorm of legal trouble ensued uh after it was published there was an article in the times about it that wasn't just the review it was kind of about its release and it got a lot of attention and then it was on the bestseller list and so then viking apparently just pulled all of its promotional stuff yeah it sounded like they were afraid of it being they were okay with publishing it but they didn't want it to call a bunch of attention to it yes yes uh and then like because it didn't get challenged i think that helped set this precedent that then later cases following it um, would protect your, as Coover is proud to tell you, like a few years after my book, SNL's out there just mocking the president on television. <laughs> yep, a straight line from um, one thing to the other. <laughs> I found an interesting article on... I don't, I don't know the full yeah. history of, of like fair use and, and parody law. I... I I'd, like I, I know it is fairly strong now. Like you have a lot of leeway to yeah. parody public figures because people in power theoretically should be like Checked. more open yeah. to to ridicule and and to commentary than people who are not in power. But I, I don't know the exactly when in the history of the country that that became that way. You know, I don't know either. I did find a legal. Article, article, a law review article, uh, more interesting than I expected to, and I intend to go read more of it later. It's from 1978, right after this book was published by Isidore Silver in the Penn Law Review called Libel, the Higher Truths of Art and the First Amendment. Um, and it goes through a lot of, pu- it uses public burning as its test case for like mm-hmm. a bunch of different defenses of art. And like specifically novels, I guess, with regard to depicting public figures, um, it spends a whole section basing a lot of its arguments on the 1964 case New York Times versus Sullivan, which was about like whether or not you have to have actual ma- it's established an actual malice precedent for like defamation cases and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it basically is like, listen, we need to c- contend with new fiction that is like melding fact and fiction, or as one might call it, a faction, which is a real term he uses in the article. And I but found it's already it, a word that means a different thing. I know, but I found it in other articles about Robert Coover, and I thought I was losing my mind, um, where the specific like reliance on real-life facts with a fictional fantastical element uh, combines to create an opinion of the author such that it should be protected by free speech. It's an interesting like argument that I think we are pr- is pretty established at this point. Um, and I it's just it also goes to like talk about like using Nixon as a character in this book. Yes, it is both based on the real Richard Nixon, but it is also using Nixon as a symbol and that symbol would not be as potent if you just said generic crappy american president like if you just yeah right like if up. you just if you just said it was some guy and it was like obvious that it was a thinly veiled nixon metaphor yeah. but it wasn't actually nixon like yeah there's still a, a disconnect or a 
a, a separation from that that lessens the punch a little bit, especially when some of the stuff that happens in this book happens in this book. <laughs> uh, well, I know there's some other stuff we might want to talk about, but we should probably get into the book first to do that. Let's take a quick break first, maybe. Okay. Andrew. Craig. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? Always. Well, <laughs> maybe you could use someone to talk to about it. Yeah, I think I could. And if anybody Honestly. at home is feeling that way, uh, I would love to tell them about our sponsor this week, BetterHelp, which makes professional... Yeah, <laughs> BetterHelp is especially helpful when the thing standing in the way of you is you. Yeah. <laughs> which is the thing that I run into a lot. <laughs> Uh, BetterHelp makes professional counseling accessible, affordable, and convenient. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in a safe, private online environment in under 48 hours, and you can send them a message at any time. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions that fit into your life, and the service is available for clients worldwide. As I said before, they're committed to matching you with licensed professional counselors whose expertise matches your specific needs, uh, and as listeners... You'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at BetterHelp.com slash Overdue. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's BetterHelp, BetterHelp.com slash Overdue. Okay, so the public burning. To talk about the public burning, it's, it's good to talk about the specific event that it is centered around, which is the execution of julius and ethel rosenberg mm. if you now craig i know you said you had some stuff that you wanted to tell me about them the the basic rundown is my my understanding of of the events is that they uh were accused of stealing uh the secrets to america's nuclear weapons and selling them to the russians yeah and that was that was most of the thing i like i believe they were the only two people executed for espionage uh during the cold war yeah i know that at the time there was a lot of question as to how useful the the things that they allegedly turned over to the russians would have been mm -hmm. in building a nuclear weapon i know that ethel in particular was thought to have have gotten too harsh a sentence, and that her adult children are still like to this day fighting to have her her name cleared. Um, and yeah, that that is, and I know that that there was some, and and this factors into the book a little bit too, is that there was some brouhaha because there was like a one of the justices on the Supreme Court like stayed the execution after it had made its way all the way through the court system. And like they appealed directly to then President Eisenhower for clemency and he declined to to give it. And what the book presents and and understand that the book is is come out has come out like 25 years after these executions happen. Like yeah. the book depicts this these executions as like the thing that this sort of I don't know if backwards is the word I would use, but this like bloodthirsty, never look back, like rule. I rule the world now and I am not a hundred percent sure what to do with it all the time. Like the, the populace of this country needs this to happen for various reasons, including that um, part of the legal case that was made against the Rosenbergs was like pinning deaths that were happening in the Kore Korean war on them because like, you know, Russia and, and red China wouldn't have felt as emboldened to challenge American supremacy if they did not have these nuclear secrets. Yeah. Um, and so any war that happens because countries feel like they can go to war with America are the faults of you two people. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, the, the country, as presented in this book by literally a personified version of Uncle Sam. And we're going to talk a lot about that, I think. But Uncle Sam wants them to be wants them to be dead. OK. And that's kind of the crux of, of the book. And so we get uh, alternating chapters, uh, some through the eyes of then Vice President Richard Nixon. Uh, the year is 1953. This is a few months after Eisenhower's first inauguration. 
Um, and, and then the other chapters are not really from the perspective of anyone in particular, but are more trippy and uncle Sam oriented. And then toward the end of the book, they all just kind of collide in this big giant car crash of, of nutso things <laughs> culminating in the actual execution scene and like, and then going from there into an epilogue, but that's okay. So that, that's like the broad strokes. This is, if you ask me as my in-laws ask me today to summarize, Hey, what's your overdue book about this week? That's like the short version. Yeah. So I got that. I uh, was talking to my in-laws on a phone call the other day and they asked what I was prepping for on this week. And I said, Oh, I, we had this book about the Rosenbergs and uh, I, thought it might be a good fit for Andrew because he's kind of interested in 20th century politics. <laughs> I mm-hmm. didn't. And at that point, I had done no further research on the like style of the book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, can we let me start with this. You okay. messaged me earlier in the week and you said it took you a little while to get into it. It did. When it started clicking, I guess it was Nixon's fault. Um what wasn't working for you or was making it a little tough early? And then how did that change for you? I mean, it's just, it's, it is very disorienting to be presented with this. So let's talk about uncle Sam. Please talk about why this book feels like a fever dream. And so much of it does actually literally feel like a nightmare where you can't, but like one of those low key nightmares where you can't like, you're trying really hard to leave the house, but it feels like you're stuck in molasses and you just can't get love it. Yeah, stuff Excellent. going. It, it's so much of the book just feels like that, especially the Nixon stuff, because he always he like as the book progresses, he gets steadily like schlubbier and schlubbier as as like bad things happen to him. Oh God. <laughs> Until like the entire last fifth of the book, he just like has his pants around his ankles and keeps trying to pull them up and can't. It's it's weird. Okay. So Uncle Sam is both an embodiment of America, like to the point where there are scenes depicting bits of the Korean War and like when Uncle Sam is is doing stuff is like in good form and is triumphing like that is that is literally connected to American troops doing good war things in the Korean war. Okay. But also uncle Sam is some weird sort of ghost who possesses the possesses the bodies of people who are president of the United States. Yes. And he's also kind of a shapeshifter who at various points, like the, the physical aspects of different presidents will like come through Yes, in his form in some way. It's so weird. And and like and it is it is extremely trippy to read. Yeah. And but also and so here's one thing I didn't like about the book, and I can talk about it now and then we don't have to talk about it again because it's not as central as some of the just like surrealist stuff that's going on. Sure, sure. But often in listing big, you know, big groups of like historical figures, like talking about all the different presidential like jaw lines and whatever that uncle sam is evincing at any given point a lot of the time it does just end up being kind of like lists of things including toward the end this one interminable list that is literally just everybody who was serving in the u.s senate at that point and what state they represented yeah a full a full list yeah all the way down yeah not like saying anything Except doing the list, and well, so the there's list, there's the, a yes, lot of the list th- says something, but that yes, 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 yes. Well, it just it's not even that it it's saying something, I guess, and like calling attention to all the people who were metaphorically there for this execution, and just like trying to build this sense that the country is thirsting for it. It, it accomplishes that, but when you like you, when you read a lot of that then it does start to feel like it's just kind of taking up space on the page. In sure. A way. Do you, can I ask you a question? Um, Do you think that that list at the end might have worked if you hadn't encountered previous list stuff stylistically that kind of burned you on it publicly? Well, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I point that one out because that was one that I was like literally skimming through to see like when what we was happening. At the end yeah, yeah. Because I read, I read like the first quarter of it and was like oh these this is just like a list of senators i'm just gonna page through this until it's clear that he's done with it (laughs) 
because he doesn't because he's not he's not throwing me anything else. But no, at that I call that one out because that is one where the list fatigue like got to me, and I was reading it on a deadline for the podcast, and so it's like okay, yada yada yada. I've encountered you know there's um I've encountered other works that do like a list stuff like that, and I feel like you get usually it works when you get one, you get one uh-huh. big list. Yeah. And the point is that it's the list, and the point is that the list is long. But yeah, and not like here. I'm going to list all the presidents, but this time I'm going to do it by like listing all their nicknames, and you know who it is because <laughs> everybody knows that Martin Van Buren was born in Kinderhook, New York. But like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm not going to call him out by t- by name this time. Okay, you know. So that's a stylistic thing you didn't cotton on to, or like F. The, he refers to FDR as like. Mr. Again and again and again or something that imply like calls attention how many times that okay. he was president. <laughs> anyway. Sure. That's the deal with the book. Well, so talk to me. <laughs> let's go back to Uncle Sam because he demands to be talked about. He does. What did it you want to talk like... about with Uncle Sam? Well, like what? What is the book doing? How does it let you know like what is even happening and how does it? What does it feel like to move between the Sam chapters and the Nixon chapters? I mean, the the Sam chapters are just this sort of, I mean, it's disembodied in that you're not, like, you're not in Nixon's head. You're not in anybody's head. You're just sure. like, looking at a description of things that are happening. Yeah. And Uncle Sam is this very... And I, 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 this is where it becomes clear that the yes, the book is like a, a criticism of America in a lot of ways, because Uncle Sam is this like rootin' tootin' Yosemite Sam, like, mm. <laughs> like yeah. rootin' and a hollerin', guns a blazin', pretty racist caricature of a, of a lot of different things, and he's very strong, and he's got a lot of like force. And for a little while there, it looked like everything was going to be great because America had the bomb and nobody else did. And so there was going to be peace all over the, the world. And this is this is peace that would be backed up by the fact that America could just bomb straight up who, destroy yeah. anybody who they wanted with no retribution. But this would be the way to get peace. And then, you know, after... World War Two is over. You have like not even a decade where this looks like, you know, the the century of American supremacy. And then, oh, these other people start getting the bomb and it, it messes up. It throws off the balance and, and the not even the balance it throws off like America's supremacy and replaces it with this balance of terror, which is the hmm. the old mutually assured destruction yep. thing. Yep. That I think our parents generation probably lived with in the back of their heads the way that we live with climate change in the back of our heads now. Like I've got to imagine, like I don't think a lot minute to minute about being nuked and being like obliterated in, in that way because you know, the, the cold war has been, I mean, you know, you can, you can argue about whether it's like over or what, <laughs> or what that I means. I fundamentally but do like, not want to argue about whether or not the Cold War is over. Nothing I don't want to either, to but, but, they're, like, they're, but they're not doing like after school TV specials that everybody watches about like the, the fear of nuclear apocalypse. No, anymore, you're right. You're is right, what you're I'm right. saying. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Can I like, so I just looked it up. Um, apparently we credit... Mutually Assured Destruction to Donald Brennan in 1962. Well, geez, Donald. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Why did you do that, Donald? And he came up with this acronym, ironically, to argue that holding weapons capable of destroying society was irrational. Good for Donald. Um, but I'm with you. Even, like, stories about world-ending nuclear disaster, to just get nice and heavy for a second. Uh-huh. Um yeah, I think in my brain I automatically start to like map them to climate change stuff and just like yeah, it's we like, live in an era of like post-apocalypse fiction anyway which just supposes that we're all all going to go through one. Yeah, which is its well, own thing. I guess what what I mean when I say that is like it's a thing that I probably think about a little bit every single day, but it's a thing that I can't I Yeah. Like, yeah. 
it's a thing that I can't be thinking about every minute of every day because otherwise yes. you just kind of collapse in on yourself and nothing, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want to do anything. No, I, I and so I, yeah. I might, I think living in like the, the seventies and eighties, just from like, you know, reading and watching period fiction and, and reading about like accounts of, of life at that time. I think that nuclear Holocaust was, yeah. M- occupy that sort of existential dread slot in a lot of people's and, memory banks. And the, you know? and here we have the the Rosenbergs in the 50s. I guess Coover is arguing as like this becomes this perfect like let's focus all of these really fresh anxieties. This is before a generation of people would learn to live with MAD as we're talking about, but like there's really fresh anxiety about other people having the bomb, which it sounds like in the book is literally uncle Sam, a personified uncle Sam having this anxiety yeah. or fear. Well, and it's interesting that you've got like a personified uncle Sam when you've all, when the Rosenbergs in, in a lot of ways are like personified I don't know, like fears about Russia having the bomb, like executing these two people accomplishes nothing in the sense that the 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 cow is out of the barn already. Yes, correct. But it does, you know, they are like avatars of this thing and it it will bring some uh, some degree of like catharsis to the society to see them answer for their alleged crimes yeah in uh, so there's there an interview go. in 83 i think that nixon gave that i found some quotes from where he and, and this is i found coverage of this wrapped up in documents that were revealed in like 2015 that mostly exonerated ethel rosenberg from these specific charges her brother was also involved, and he's the one who was the primary witness during the case, and he argue, you know, he may or may not have been protecting his wife anyway, um, where Nixon was like, yeah, she probably shouldn't have been executed. There was some tainted evidence because people's testimonies had changed between the grand jury and the trial. And, like, if we really wanted to, we wouldn't have done it. But I do think she was a bad person. Like, and you're like, Nixon. <laughs> Jesus. And, and what he said, he's like, we, in their minds, giving Ethel the death penalty was an attempt to make Julius confess and f- turn on other people. And it didn't work. Yeah. Um, regardless of what they did, which by all accounts, it seems they did do a bunch of espionage. Um but yeah, I, I mean, also the, stand by like we don't need to be killing people ever. The, yeah, <laughs> like the, the, the state doesn't. The state doesn't need to to kill people. Yeah. The end. The um, end. So, so let's talk about tricky dick. You want to talk about? Book? You want to talk about? You want to talk about all Richard Milhouse Nixon? I the do. The sake t- of Milhouse from The Simpsons. That blew my mind when I was a kid. I was like, why is this character named that? It's because Matt Craning hates Richard Nixon. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Nixon. <laughs> Man. I guess let's talk about Nixon's journey in this book. So, Richard Nixon's character arc in this book is that Uncle Sam visits him in various ways. And it is presented as, like, you start seeing Uncle Sam... If you are going to be or if there's a pretty good chance that you will one day be president, like you aren't literally going to be inhabited by him until you become the incarnation, which is the thing that they the capital I incarnation is one of the things that they call presidents in this book. Um, So you do get sometimes it's Uncle Sam just kind of blowing into his office and not being like and not being a literal person who is like embodying uncle Sam at that moment. But then there's this one thing where he's playing golf with Dwight E. Eisenhower and he transforms into uncle Sam. And he does make a lot of other allusions to like the system, 
where being possessed by Uncle Sam does like visibly age you a little bit each time. This is, and yes. so that's like the in fiction description for why being president ages you so quickly. <laughs> and there is one allusion to an incident where uh, like a botched transformation is what gave Woodrow Wilson like the stroke or whatever it was that he had. I am I am kind of into I could see how and there were reviews I read that were like, this book is a little messy and bloated, but what- it is it is definitely that it is one hundred percent that. And when I complain about the the list like the, stuff, the tendency to list yeah. things, that is yeah, that's an emblem of places where this could be trimmed a lot. If if all he was here to do was to make a point, yeah, you could lop a third off of it. I think yeah, and not lose what, much. What is what's interesting is like it definitely sounds like it could be very bloated, as some of the reviews said. Um, but that the Nixon character is potentially fascinating, which I want to hear more about. And that like, if he had, cons- if this had actually been like a agitprop political theater piece, this uncle Sam thing works very well for me. Like uncle Sam <laughs> as this like awful embodiment, metaphysical embodiment of what it is for this specific country to have one person have that much power. Like, that works. The mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't stand up to like maybe it overstays its welcome. Maybe it is an SNL sketch, Robert Coover. I'm not sure, <laughs> but like as a just as a metaphor, it works. Whether or not it, well, and you know, reading me, it in 2021, yeah. you start thinking about interesting questions like what happens when Uncle Sam goes to inhabit the president and it turns out that it's a black guy this time. Yeah. Because uncle Sam's like, and and Nixon is presented this way too, as like not racist by way of, you know, I have Jewish friends or whatever. Like it's, Mm, mm. but, but uncle Sam in particular uses lots of, lots of slurs, including the N word. Huh? And a lot of pretty bad slurs for uh, for Asian people of all stripes. Okay. Talking about elements of like the Korean War. So yeah, it's ugh. yeah, pretty bad. Um, but Nixon, however. though, though in that way, as as like if you if you read Uncle Sam as uh, as America incarnate, yeah. then that makes a lot of sense. But uh, so Nixon is the vice president. He's he's being visited by uncle sam he does want uncle sam's approval uncle sam has implied strongly to him that he should be on this on this rosenberg thing because as as the book opens uh the supreme supreme court justice uh, uh william douglas i think is the one who issued that stay that kept them from being executed briefly correct Doug- um, douglas, douglas has issued a stay do you want me to dive into that or do you want to keep going I don't I don't think we need to get more into it than that, except that, like, tell me if this is what really happened in the book. It's like Douglas issues this stay and then they have this unprecedented at the time recalling of the Supreme Court during its normal recess to vacate that stay so that they can execute these people more quickly. Is yeah. That pretty Chief much Just- what went down. Chief Justice Fred Vinson reportedly sent out special planes like chartered flights to get vacationing justices back to make sure that they executed the Rosenbergs. Um, All of it, a lot of it hinged on which was the appropriate act under which to try them, the Espionage Act or the Atomic Energy Act, which had well, so, passed yeah, like when Doug- they did their stuff. Yeah. Well, and, and Douglas was making the, the argument, I believe, where like if there are two different punishments for yes. the same crime like under the law then we are obliged to to go with the lesser of the punishments and and that was the grounds on which he you know said that they shouldn't be executed and there was a bunch of stuff with the supreme court where like they it wasn't like a predictable political fault line thing like it nope. often is now like it was just as much about like not wanting to publicly like retract or, or like countermand something that somebody, another sitting yes. justice had done like so quickly and so publicly, but it, it was just, just this big 
fun is a big brouhaha. Fun fact, uh, Fred Vinson reading out the, or like at the public reading of this decision, that was Chief Justice Fred Vinson's last public appearance before he died that September. <sighs> Boy. Leave well, a legacy, everybody. Yeah, definitely. Um, so Uncle Sam's implied to Nixon, you know, you, you need to be doing something about this. You know, you need because we need to we've we've been setting up in Times Square to to kill these commies. And it's, oh my God. you know, we just this is something that we need to do. And so Nixon's been he's not 100 percent sure what Uncle Sam wants to do. So he's digging into all the stuff about the Rosenbergs, including all of this uh, information about their trial. And he does find himself honestly like so he is there's a lot of talk in this book about how Nixon is like the consummate politician and there is stuff that he doesn't want to do that he does do because that's how bare knuckle politics works. And there's a lot about how he is practiced at taking either side of an issue and the objective not being to forward whatever ideological goals it, it is that you have, but the it's just to win. Yeah. And so he's reading the, you know, the, the prosecution and the, and the defense in the Rosenberg trial and just noting like one, the defense lawyer's job should have been to destroy the FBI's credibility, but he kept talking about what honorable like people they all were Hmm. to be serving Hmm. the country. Um, They, you know, they lean way too much on testimony from like an individual witness. I think in this case it was Ethel's brother that you well he was the witness for the prosecution yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah, yeah. The, the prosecution leaned too much oh, on sure. the testimony of this of this one witness like it was a, it was a case that was thin enough that somebody who knew what they were doing even up against this you know the the prosecution and the judge being like pretty inclined to be anti-rosenberg yeah <laughs> a, a good defense attorney could have done a lot better with this and just thinking through how he would have handled it if he were there and if winning were the only objective and huh. that's just kind of the person that he is um and he finds himself increasingly identifying a lot with both of them but Ethel in particular because he was born poor and he had like brothers die young and he was raised during the depression and he views himself as being very like pulled up by his own bootstraps, just like working hard yep. American dream. The the thing that, um, that white people tell themselves. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, and this is something I have over the course of my life been guilty of is like equating poorness with like lack of privilege if that makes sense like and i think it's a a particular flavor of white privilege is to say you know i i have struggled in this one specific way and so don't tell me about yeah the struggles that you've had you know what i mean yeah of course um so he you know he he starts to sort of view he and ethel as like you know they're but for the grace of god sort of things like their lives both could have gone and either direction based on a couple of events that that happened during like specific times in their lives. And he over the course of the, so he, man, it's so, cause there's this part where he's like thinking about Ethel and he's kind of like writing this weird fanfic in his head. Yeah. And Uncle Sam comes into his office and it's revealed that he, has been thinking about Ethel Rosenberg and uh, d- doing some solo work. Oh, uh, oh, in the garage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like going out to the woodshed. Some solo dolo sort of. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, you, know, you, know, you know what I mean? Some uh, yeah, spending time with Tricky Dick. Some uh, palm palmistry, palm reading, if you. <laughs> Yeah, you, you know, you got to grease some palms if you want to get ahead in politics. This has gotten way worse than if we had just said the word, I think. So that Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and Uncle Sam gets really mad. Uh, but so Nixon <laughs> starts to before the execution can happen, he decides he's going to run up to the prison and he's going to make some kind of appeal to them where he emphasizes that, you know, we're not so different you and I and if you could just like give us anything that would lead us to the people who you were talking to. I can, I think I can, can stop you from dying. Yeah. From being executed. 
And so it gets it gets more and more surreal. And one of the very surreal passages is when Cooper just talks for like 10 pages about uh, Richard Nixon and Ethel Rosenberg, like making out with each other and like getting really turned on by each other. Um, Is it clear in the book that that is happening? It is. It definitely does happen. Okay, that didn't happen in, real, in the real. Yeah, life. no, I know. I I think that, like I asked you to to research any particular relationship that Nixon had with this case, and as far as the record that we can find easily now says, he didn't have a lot, to, a ton to do with it. No, which does give, uh, it does give Cooper a lot of room to just kind of invent what Richard Nixon might have been up to at this particular point. Yeah, the only thing that I could find was that Nixon was in the room where it happened, where they uh, argued against, the AG argued against clemency to Eisenhower, much like folks like Pope Pius XII said, maybe don't kill these people. The Mm -hmm. entire, large portions of the international community uh, were vehemently opposed to this, as as people here in the United States were as well. Other elements of the international community were way more friendly to commies than America was. Well, and so it was just yeah. a bunch of pinko I hadn't, commies who were who were saying that we shouldn't execute. You're them. right. I hadn't thought about that. Anyway. You hadn't. I, yeah, you hadn't thought about that, had you? No, I had not. Anyway, so he's okay. So we we mentioned the these this public execution in Times Square. That is not what really happened. They were executed at Sing Sing. Uh, the mm-hmm. prison in New York. This is a it's a it's a weird part a pocket of the book where time and space like collapse on each other. Because okay. I mean, because at this point you've got the the human incarnation of like Betty Crocker out like <laughs> smacking senators with a rolling pin or something. Like it, it, the book is so the last like quarter of the book is so weird. Everything from Richard Nixon and Ethel Rosenberg macking on each other in sing sing like yeah. hours before she's due to be killed it gets so weird it sure. gets so it's so he is in sing sing and he's doing this and then he like gets that like they're coming for ethel and so she is like his pants are down around his ankles they're all twisted up <laughs> and he had been he had been trying to have some sex with her but could like even though he was very his his body was ready his pants were not cooperating and it's just like it there are a lot of weird like three stooges pratfall things that nixon gets into like he gets his he steps in horse manure and then he gets his shoe stuck under a uh the seat of in a taxi cab and then he can't get his foot out from under the seat while the taxi cab driver like berates him and then he gets poop all over his hands yeah, this and is some like just literal clown stuff. Like it is all clown stuff. And act, so by yeah. the end of the book, he's like a an unshaven, poop handed, like hand, pants around his ankles, <laughs> like shirt sleeves rolled up, just complete buffoon of a of a public figure. Uh huh. Um. And so yeah, he's he's making out with Ethel Rosenberg, and then she like. She, there's this this story that is relayed earlier in the book. I don't know if this happened or not, where she was involved in writing "I am a scab" on someone's butt. That I as don't part of like a union action. Didn't I don't come up know my that, that happened, but it did seem it did seem like a fun, you know, like old a real old timey union action when you weren't just tweeting, you were writing stuff on people's butts. You were tweeting on people's butts is what you were yeah, doing. Right. <laughs> yeah, two hundred eighty characters. That's one forty per cheek. Get going. Oh my god. Um, how do you retweet <laughs> so, that? I mean, I think that you press your butt up against yeah, the up other against person's the butt and you make like a stamp of it and then you go and you stamp it other places. This is an episode, huh? This is an episode. Well, it's a it's a book, you know? Yeah, I and know. Sometimes you read sometimes you read a book and you get an episode. <laughs> 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 and so Richard's like she writes something she does something, she like touches him on the butt and she's like oh your butt's all dirty I'm just cleaning your butt off and then he backs out of this door in Sing Sing and ends up on the stage in Times Square where they're going to be executed and where Uncle Sam and all these senators and governors and Eisenhower and everybody is all like everybody's all there all these protesters and counter protesters are all there it's this giant like hedonistic bizarre scene 
and he's giving this unhinged speech with his pants around his ankles and he has I am a scamp written on his butt in lipstick by Ethel Rosenberg. Oh my god. And then they Saucy. get they get executed mm. in front of all these in front of all these people and there's I don't know and Nixon's giving this weird speech where he's like I'm pulling my pants down for freedom and you should all pull your pants down too. What? And like a bunch of people in the audience pull their pants down and then Uncle Sam pulls his pants down and it makes all the lights go out. But then Uncle Sam comes back with the like a spark of light and then Ethel and Ju- Julius and Ethel Rosenberg get uh, electrocuted. And then the book ends with Richard Nixon, who's had a no good, terrible, very bad, rotten, whatever day, uh, being uh, forcibly penetrated by uncle sam oh which i guess is how uncle sam gets into the president's and he's like hey you're gonna be president now and then it's just a very very violent and horrible description of that process and how painful and horrible it is oh (sighs) so it doesn't leave a great taste in your mouth this book it's no, very, it's, it's that's too, a very it's way, it's way ending. Too, it's it's way too long. Yeah, it has interesting things to say. I've I mean I've listen. I've never read a book where any of this stuff happens before. <laughs> Jesus, please. Can I I've, read? You? I've read. Listen, I've read books that that satirize elements of American society, but I've never read a book where Uncle Sam has sex with Richard Nixon. Yeah, before, but now I have. Well, you me- know. Let me read a uh, a few yeah, let's, review clips let's for you out, as we close out here. I'm because this book really did a number on me. I can tell. This is one of the ones I'm going to think about a lot. Uh huh. And I don't know that that's necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just it just is. It's just with the way that it is. Man, you're going to be like that boss baby guy tweet with this book. Um, yeah, getting strong public burning vibes <laughs> from this from this Joe Biden press conference. Uh, the Kirkus review from 1977. Uh, The first line, neither the pre-publication publicity nor Coover's exuberant word riffs can conceal the tiny mindedness behind this rewrite of early 50s American history as comic book mythos fantasy. A provocative kernel lost in a dazzling, deadening morass, precisely the kind of book more likely to be talked about than read. Interesting that Kirkus Reviews predicted our podcast uh, 40 years (laughs) in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from the New York Times review, which was like kind of mixed, it really liked the Nixon stuff um, and thought the other stuff was like sometimes impressive and sometimes draggy. Uh, That's pretty much where I am on it, too. We need our Nixons, Coover seems to say, both because they can cater to our most reckless desires of the moment and because they are so easy and gratifying to punish afterwards. Mm-hmm. And such a need does us very little credit. Uh, and it goes on to say that, like, if this is what the book's about, that probably makes it worth it, even though it does at times, like, succumb to its own excess um, and and its own, like, desire to be fun satire or whatever. Uh, but that, sing- that singular criticism of, like, let's imbue Nixon with some, like, relatability. Some pathos. At a time, so the book was supposed to be published in uh, with the uh, bicentennial in '76, but all of the legal <laughs> concerns delayed it by a year. But to, mm-hmm. to publish this on the bicentennial, two years after Nixon's resignation, with "I am a scamp, Nixon, Nixon" in your book, um, certainly makes a statement. Oh, it does. I think the statement is "I am a scamp." Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, I, I, you know, to hear you tell it to me. I find the notion of the Uncle Sam character like compelling, but I utterly understand how it would not be fun to read for like too long or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, I don't know, like just the the Rosenberg stuff is so heavy and so you know it's wrapped up with anti-communist stuff. It got wrapped up with anti-Semitic stuff. Like to put that into a comic satire environment 
yeah, is like really um, ballsy. Yeah, like th- there's Richard Nixon, as far as I know, never ended up like giving a speech with his pants around his ankles. That's a haha. It's funny. Yeah, um, yeah. Uncle Sam is not a real person <laughs> who does not like play golf really well and like swing his golf club at golf balls like a baseball bat and and knock all the golf balls out of the park like oh that's that's fun like these are real people who literally died and they shouldn't have died yeah hmm and so yeah that that's a i don't know if it's I, I think that juxtaposition, is, like that's something that Coover is is doing intentionally, and I think that I think that's right. a thing that keeps the book grounded to the extent that it is grounded, like that gives the book gravity, so it's not sure. just like this weird sex farce. <laughs> yes, um, which keeps it from just being "Let Me Lampoon Nixon," because again, like yes, the idea yeah, for yeah, the yeah. book predates like Nixon as anything other than a congressperson or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um or no, I I guess it, it it predates him as president. He had he had It predates him as president. Yes, yeah, he he had yeah. been in the house um on the House on American Activities Committee. Hooray. Yeah. Um he had been he was in the he ran for Senate in 50 and so was in the Senate for 2 years and then then he was uh, VP was on yeah, the was VP right. ticket after that. Yes. Yeah. And he was as VP is when he gave the the checkers speech. Yes, about his and following is, his political funding scandal. Yeah, and then, and then there's a lot in this book about the the checkers speech and and what it you know what he learned about politics from it and how it flowed from his experience in politics and how it was one of the few to, like this is when Coover creates sympathy for Nixon is like, this is one of the only times in Richard Nixon's entire already fairly lengthy political life where he felt like people were voting for him and not against somebody else. (laughs) Okay. Good job, Coover. Mm -hmm. 10 points for that one. Yeah. Like Nixon is a, is a uniquely hateable. Yeah figure in public life even as he is briefly made a sympathetic character in this book yeah sure all right well thanks for uh take you one andrew yeah sure any time thanks for uh telling me about this work of faction Mm -hmm. just want to get that one out there one more time no i love i love to read faction faction is excellent yeah um, if you want to put me on trial for uh, word crimes um, or fact crimes, send us an email at overduepod <laughs> at gmail.com. Hit us up on Twitter and Facebook at overduepod. Thanks to you, Starfish Chick, Gathoni, Nora, Rachel, Faith, Hannah, Kelly, Yvonne, Alexis, Lauren, Lynn, of course, and many more <laughs> uh, for reaching out to us this past week. <laughs> Our theme song was composed by Nick Larangis. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? OverduePodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. You click those links, it takes you to bookshop.org. You buy the book, you get a book, your local independent bookseller gets a sale, and we get a small referral cut. So it's win-win-win for everybody. Uh, we also have links to Apple and Google. Uh, those are the ways you can subscribe to the show. Um, quick, like housekeeping note is, um, our podcast network headgum is moving our, like our podcast, like distribution service sometime in the next couple of weeks. So like, we don't have any control of that and you shouldn't notice a difference. Uh, you should keep getting new episodes on Mondays when they come out. But, um, if you do notice any weirdness, like redownloading old episodes or, or like things suddenly stop working, that, that is why. And we will. You know, we'll pass along any like troubleshooting notes that that we need to pass on. But I yeah. just wanted to give people a, a heads up that that would that would be happening soon. Um, cre- Patreon.com slash OverduePod is how you support the show directly and you get access to our bonus episodes, including one that we're going to be recording this week about the novelization of the first Space Jam film. Can't believe we're saying the first Space Jam film. Not this most recent one. Which I've heard some about and sounds wild. But we're going to talk about but, the first one, the book, yes. anyway. 
the book. Uh, Craig, what are you reading? So are you, where are we going to be next week in relation to Eden, did you say? East of it. You're going to be east of Eden. I'm going to be hanging out east of Eden with John Steinbeck. Me okay, and Johnny S. You know. Johnny Steins and Beck are going to be there east of Eden. <laughs> Odele, let's go. Jeez, okay. All right, everybody. Thanks. I'm thanks, getting a devil's thanks. haircut in my mind. Thanks for listening to this. We've got two microphones and no turntables. I think that's what we're doing wrong. This is where it's at. <laughs> Until we talk to you next week, I suppose. Try to be happy. If you can. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.